0: Lord, as we learn more about you this morning, I pray for your spirit to be here with us and amongst us. Lord, as we open your word, open the writings of Ellen White, Lord, may your spirit be with us to discern, Lord, between right and wrong, good and evil, Lord. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of being here at Camp Meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. Poisonous Frogs, part two. Revelation 16, verse 13, and it talks about the threefold union. It says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the who? The false prophet. So, in the book of Revelation, you have a false trinity. For every truth that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. For the true gift of tongues, he has gibberish. For the true Sabbath, he has Sunday worship. For the the true... Trinity, or the Godhead, you have the false trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But don't get confused here because the false trinity is not the threefold union. The frogs that come out of their mouth is a threefold union. The dragon, the beast, and and the false prophet is the counterfeit trinity, but the frogs that come out, the messages that, that come out of their mouths are the anti-three angels' messages. So, what does a frog do? What does a frog do? They hop, right? They hop, hop, and then hop, and then hop. They'll stop. You scare them, to hop again, right? So, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, these three unclean spirits-like frogs, they come out of their mouth. In other words, their teachings and messages from the dragon, which is paganism and spiritualism, ultimately Satan, The beast, Catholicism, and the false prophet. Who's that? Apostate Protestantism, right? So these messages, these false messages, comes from all these three things, and they're hopping. They jump here to here, and they'll stop here for a few years. And then they'll go a little further. Stop right there for a few years, and then, and then go a little further. You see, the, the devil is smart. He doesn't just give you total apostasy at once. It's a growing progression. And this, this emerging church movement first entered Seventh-day Adventism in 1903. There was a book on the plates at the Battle Creek um, Review and Herald on the night that it burned. How many of you know what the book was called? The Living Temple, right, written by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, and that book promoted a theory, a concept called pantheism, but more specifically, we learned this morning, it's what? Panentheism, that's right, good job. So, this first enters Seventh-day Adventism through, uh, in 1903 through Kellogg. Let's move on here. Okay, we went over that, dragging the beast and the false my clicker working, false prophet, there we go. Ellen White says, G.C. page 561, Satan has long been preparing for his final effort to deceive the what? The world. The foundation of his work was laid by the assurance given to even Eden. So for every deception that Satan has, past, present, or future... Every single deception was laid back in the Garden of Eden, right? This morning we saw that what happened in Eden? Well, there were two lies that Satan, the serpent, gave to Eve there in the Garden. Number one, ye shall not surely die. And you know, once again, we as Seventh-day Adventists always focus upon this theme here. Ye shall not surely die, right? We, we preach it to our kids in our prophecy seminars that, it's, it, that this concept has to deal with the state of the dead. And yes, it does. But we sometimes overlook verse 5, which tells us, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Isn't that right? And we saw earlier that, that this term emergence, or emerging spirituality, comes from what? The great chain of being. Remember that? It goes back thousands of years ago. Every pagan religion, Babylon, all these pagan religions built upon... A, their, their religion was built upon this great chain of being where you evolve and you basically become your own God. You see, that concept was the same concept given to even the garden. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Same concept, it's never changed. So, this emerging church is not something new, it's old. And, and that's why, in this movement, leaders in, the, in this movement always go back to ancient Christian resources, recontextualize them into the modern. They always go back because it's the same thing for thousands of years. It's, great, it's a great chain of being. On the left is the traditional one. On the right is the, is the more modern one using, uh, that has been used in the 18th century and 19th century as well. Let's move on. Notice, Sister White says, Through his subtlety, he gives to his soul-destroying errors the appearance of truth. Herein is their power to deceive. It is because they are a counterfeit of the truth that spiritualism, theosophy, and the like deceptions gain such power over the minds of men. Herein is a masterly working of Satan. He pretends to be the savior man, the benefactor of the human race, and thus he more readily lures his victims to, uh, to, to destruction. Notice, we learned earlier, different spiritual disciplines that are taught, such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, Lectio Divina, centering prayer, I, I, I said that already. Automatic writing, all these different spiritual disciplines will lead you into entering into the silence. And there in the silence, something is to speak to you there. And if you're Christian, if you're a Christian mystic, then you would think God speaks to you there. If you're a Buddhist mystic, then I don't know what speaks to you there. Peace speaks to you there. If you're a, if you're a Jewish mystic, then Elohim speaks to you there through Kabbalah, right? The spiritualistic Judaism. So that's what, but notice what Ellen White says in regards to spiritualism and theosophy. Let me ask you, what's theology? Study of God, right? Theo, God, ology, the study of. So it's knowing who God is, theology. What's theosophy? The philosophy of God, right? So what's the difference between the theology and the theosophy of God? Theosophy is made by? Exactly. Back in the ancient Greek, we we had those uh, those famous Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, I don't know, who else? Socrates, all these guys, and they were philosophers. They would just sit down all day, easy job, sit down all day and just think about things and just say nice sentences that we repeat over and over and over in the 21st century. Philosophers. The theosophy of God. In other words, God is not... We don't really use the the biblical, traditional Seventh-day Adventist hermeneutic of a a historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. We then look at the Bible as a philosophical book, and we take things here and there, what pleases to us. It's called the principle-based what? Approach to Scripture. And And we have seen this being introduced recently in our church during the whole women's ordination debate, right? Remember that? Where in order to prove women's ordination from the Bible, you would have to only use the principle-based approach to Scripture. That comes from the whole line of theosophy. And she says, uh, truth, that, that, that spiritualism, theosophy, and the like, deceptions, gain such power over the what? Why do all these spiritual disciplines have to deal with the mind? That's where the battle is. Right? Christ says, or Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We ought to have the mind of Christ because that's what helps us to overcome sin in this life. Now, spiritualism and theosophy is linked to the minds of men. Let me tell you, I'm pretty sure God showed Ellen White this over a hundred years ago because he knew that his remnant church would be facing the very same things today. Contemplative prayer, centering prayer, the emerging church movement. Spiritualism. And then he pretends to be the savior of man. Linked to spiritualism is a false Jesus. It's a false Jesus. We hear movements all the time saying, let's just talk about Jesus. And that's a great thing. We ought to talk about Jesus, right? For he he is indeed the center of Seventh-day Adventism. But Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man goes to the Father except through me. Christ is revealed through truth. God the Father is revealed through Christ's life here on earth, found in the Word of God, not through mysticism. Ellen White says, so, uh, Select the Messages, Volume 1, page 204 and 205, The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among who? So guys, this is specifically for Seventh-day Adventists that this Reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engaging in the process of reorganization. In other words, the traditional Seventh-day Adventism doesn't work anymore. We saw earlier in part one, Dr. Leonard Sweet said what? Reinvent yourself for the 21st century That's the fulfillment of Ellen White. Were this Reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The, the fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years w- would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. And this is, and she's referring to the Adventist church. Notice how she talks about when this movement comes upon the scene of 7th of the Adventism, the pillar doctrines of this church would be attacked. And let me ask you, let me ask you, what's a pillar doctrine in our church? Well, we have things like the Sabbath, like the State of the Dead, like, uh, I don't know, name some. Sanctuary, creation, what else? Sabbath. Sabbath um, what was that? Second coming. Second coming. A bunch of different doctrines, pillar doctrines as 7th of the Adventists this movement would attack the pillar doctrines. Let me tell you, there is one doctrine that no other church has. And we say, yes, it's the sanctuary. But more specifically, it's the, it's the doctrine of the investigative judgment in the context of the heavenly sanctuary. Because other churches, yeah, they'll teach you about the sanctuary. Back in Israel a long time ago, there was three compartments, six articles of furniture, Right. Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff. They'll teach you that stuff. But nobody teaches that something took place in a heavenly sanctuary in 1844. Nobody. And, and that judgment has started since then. This movement will attack that, we're told by Ellen White. Let's keep moving here. Uh, this comes from Wikipedia. This is uh, kind of sim- uh, the basic definition of this movement. It says the emerging church movement is seeking to missionally, now that term right there, missionally, is used a lot in their writings we want to missionally do this, missionally do that. It's used a lot. Assist people to shift from being spiritual tourists to Christian pilgrims. Many are drawing on ancient Christian resources recontextualized into the contemporary such as contemplation and contemplative forms of prayer, symbolic multisensory worship, storytelling and many others. This again has required a change in focus as the majority of unchurched and dechurched people are seeking something that works rather than something that is what? True. Now, is there a problem in that statement? They're seeking something that works rather than something that is true. Let me ask you why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why are we still here? Why is a Seventh-day Adventist church God's remnant church who has the last-day message? Why are we still here? If We're told, we're told, if our church had received the message that God gave to Elders Wagner and Jones, what, what would happen? Christ would have came that very same year. Which tells you one thing. If we're still here, and if we keep having more camp meetings for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, is because we haven't looked at that message. That's the answer to this movement, which we'll talk about after. Kids, millennials, my classmates, my friends, my people older than me, millennials, they're looking for something that works rather than something that is true. You know, I, I, I travel a lot, and I speak all over. And it's sad to say, but I meet many Seventh-day Adventists who are conservative, um, that are really miserable people. I don't know about you, but have you ever met somebody who's miserable on Sabbath? <laughs> you go, happy Sabbath, and look at you with that stern face. Keep your voice down at the sanctuary. You know, just very, I, I mean, they're, they're all over. You know what? <laughs> I shouldn't say this because I'm on recording, but you know what I call them? <laughs> Sabbath-keeping Catholics. <laughs> I know, that's a strong word to say, sorry. But basically, they have the truth, but the spirit behind them is the same spirit of the papacy. There are lots of people who like to control things, who, who like to dictate things, who love to receive authority over other people. It's the same spirit and power of Babylon. Sabbath-keeping Catholics. That's why when the fourth angel's message, Revelation 18, verses 1 through 4, says, come out of her, my people, and be ye not partakers of her iniquities, that angel is not only referring to people outside the membership of the Adventist church, he's referring to even people in the Adventist church. Because Babylon is not just a church down the road who worships on Sunday. Babylon is found in our hearts, and our minds. Come out of her, my people. Amen? Okay, let's move on. Proponents believe that the movement transcends such modernist labels of conservative and liberal calling the movement a conversation. The, these emergents always call their movement conversations. That's dialogue about this, a conversation about this. To emphasize its developing and decentralized nature, its vast range of standpoints and its commitment to dialogue. Participants seek to live their faith in what they uh, believe to be a postmodern society what those involved in the conversation uh, mostly agree on is their disillusionment with the organized and institutional church and their support for the what? Deconstruction of modern Christian worship, modern evangelism, and the nature of modern Christian community. Interesting. Once again, with that being said, let's read the quote again. Through his subtle through his subtlety, he gives to his soul destroying errors the appearance of truth. Herein is a power to deceive. It is because they are a counterfeit of the truth that spiritualism, theosophy, and the like, gained, uh, and the like, deceptions gain such power over the minds of men. So she says the reason why these deceptions gain power over men is through what spiritualism and theosophy. Uh, he, he pretends to be the savior of man, the benefactor of the human race, and thus he, he more readily lures his victims to, to destruction. You know, we're told by Ellen White that in the last days, Satan will actually, li- literally appear as Christ on earth, right? We're told that. He will do that. After the Sunday law is imposed upon people, Satan will, uh, the, the first uh, phase of this law, the, the, the national Sunday law is imposed, Satan so will then appear. And then, after he talks with, I don't know what, what he's going to do. I'm not a prophet. Don't want to be. He, he will then impose a death decree, right? We're told that in Revelation 13. He will cause all those to worship the first beast before him. And those who, and those who, who uh, receive the mark on his forehead or, or in his hand will, will be put to death. The death decree. Then he will do that. But the, the groundwork is laid... By spiritualism and theosophy, the false Jesus. because if Satan literally comes as Christ on Earth in the last days, people will be like, "Huh? Well, I don't know about you." But if they're conditioned years before about a false Jesus, when he comes, they'll accept him with open arms, because they're used to this false Jesus, this postmodern Jesus. and that's what will happen. Spiritualism, okay, I'll, I'll skip over this. clicker works. Earlier, we talked about the esoteric, exoteric circle. So what it is, is there are di- different religions around the circle. Uh, Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, I don't know, um, Judaism, etc. And all these religions have an esoteric phase to them, which is simply mystical tradition. So like in Judaism, you have Kabbalah. In, in Christianity, you have mysticism. In uh, in Buddhism, it's called nirvana. All these different mystical traditions, and what it does is it ultimately leads you into the center of transcendent unity. This is the roadmap to ecumenism. This is what it is. It leads you all together into one, also known as the all, or the ultimate we, like they call it. But it's all achieved through mystical traditions. I, want, I mean, this is um, from Google. It says, In religion, transcendence refers to the aspect of a God's nature and power which is wholly independent of the material universe. Beyond all physical laws, this is contrasted with imminence where a God is said to be fully pr- uh, present and thus accessible to creatures in different ways. In religious experience, transcendence is a state of being that has overcome the limitations of physical existence and by some definitions has become independent of it. This is typically manifested in what? Prayer, seance, you know know what that is? It's pretty scary. Seances, meditation, psychedelics, and paranormal visions. That's what this is all about. To enter into the transcendence or the center where tot is done through uh, prayers, different types of prayers, contemplative prayer, centering prayer, divina, all these different types of prayers, seances, Meditation practices, psychedelics, and paranormal visions. Like we saw earlier about that book, Jesus Calling. Paranormal visions. We already read that. So what are they? Just to recap. What is contemplative prayer for, uh, for those who weren't here this morning? Someone, who's was that? Yes. All the disciplines end up uh make you empty your mind. But uh, more specifically, this is simply focusing on one word or one phrase. Like Say, say for instance, you're, you're, you're having a stress day at work. You go home and you want to just tune out, empty your mind. You'll focus on one word. I don't know if it's um, Hawaii because I'm from there. You'll focus on one word and you just think about it. Think about the beaches there. Think about the waves and the coconut trees and all that stuff. And you just enter into the silence where your mind is empty and nothing can... You're in a trance, basically. So that's what this is. Um, But what, what people do is they recontextualize it into a Christian veneer. So you think on something biblical, like the word faith, or the word peace, or the word Jesus, where you enter into the silence where your mind is stripped away and where supposedly God speaks to you there in the silence. Uh, And then now, breath prayers. It goes the same, uh, all these prayers end up in the same place through through different methods. Breath prayers. Use breath prayers throughout the day as many Christians have done for centuries. You choose a brief sentence or a simple phrase that can be repeated to Jesus in what? One breath. By the way, you know Rick Warren? uh, You know his books, The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church? Earlier, I talked about something called practicing God's presence. How many of you heard of that before? Where you practice the presence of God? This is done by a bunch of mystics as well. Now, his books, The Purpose Driven Life and Church, simply uses the method, the spiritual discipline of practicing the presence of God, both in your life and in the church. That's what, that is what his whole book is built upon, is practicing the presence of God, which is a uh, spiritualistic thing as well. By the way, is spiritual formation bad? Is it? Is the term itself, whoops, is the term itself spiritual formation bad? No. Is there biblical spiritual formation? Yes. Simply forming your spiritual life. That's biblical. As I read the Bible every day, as I contemplate on the closing scenes of Christ's life on earth, and as I behold Christ daily being transformed into his image moment by moment, that's spiritual formation. The book Steps to Christ is a book on spiritual formation. It forms your spiritual life. But the term today, when you use a term out there, today, in 2016, it's always associated with these things. These practices. So be very careful. Lectio Divina, we heard that earlier where you it's, uh, it's, it's scripture readings where you just read a passage of scripture um, and you center down and then enter into the silence as well. Prayer Labyrinths, where you walk the, the prayer labyrinth and then ultimately you, you get into the center, the silence, and there are four prayer stations in the center, and, and in each station you meditate upon four different things. Now, isn't this interesting? Because in the Catholic Church, Isn't there something called prayer stations as well? Where you walk around the circle of the church, and in each part, there's different scenes of Christ's life, right? Where you stop and pray there? Yeah, stations of the cross. Same thing. It all goes back to the very beginning. Same method, same thing. Oh, here we are. The practicing of God's presence. This is by uh, Brother Lawrence. He was actually a chef in London, and then he moved to America wrote the book, Practicing the Presence of God, right here. Um, and this book is actually quoted and used by many people, many uh, famous theologians out there, uh, in order to help assist in their spiritual life. Also, we talked about earlier, what is the difference between the DMin program and the Ph.D. program? What is the difference? Remember that? What is it? What is a Ph.D.? It's a scholarly degree, right? So if you want to teach at seminary, you, you obtain a Ph.D., and there you would lecture on, I don't know, say Greek or Hebrew or semiotics or, or whatever it is. You would lecture as a, as a scholar, whereas a D-Min or a doctor of ministry is a professional pastor. Now, the thing is, a bunch of these D-Min programs in the various university, uh, universities out there are heavily built upon this book here. Why? Because this will help you become a professional person in practicing the mystical presence of God, which is where George Fox teaches as well. They they teach this as well. And once again, we mentioned earlier that four of the five founders of the what? Went there to receive their doctorate of ministry degrees. This book here, Jesus Calling, remember that? Who wrote it? Sarah Young, do you remember how she wrote it? There we go. There it is. She says, My journey began with a devotional book called God Calling back in the 1930s by two women who practiced writing. There we go. Same thing. In God's Presence. Writing the messages they received as they listened, about a year after I started reading this book, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my times of communing with God. So I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I sensed him saying. So it's not like I'm going to read God's word and see here what he's saying and then write a book upon that. She Basically what happened was she, she got a pen and a paper, practiced God's presence, a spiritual discipline, and whatever she heard in the silence, she wrote it down. This is also called automatic writing. And this is done in seances as well. And once again, this book is a very popular book out there. Very popular book. It's sold in Costco's, Walmart's, Kmart's, all over. Jesus calling. So, we mentioned earlier what are the paradoxes? We, we mentioned that earlier Heavenly Sanctuary, the, the investigative judgment postmodernism we mentioned that already. Okay, so now, the big question. We heard about all the problems this morning, right, at 9.30. All the problems in part one. Now the question is, how do we combat the emerging church? Is there a way to destroy this thing? The simple answer is no, there isn't. We can fight against it. But this will go to the end. The three-fold union, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the frogs that, that come out of the false trinity, this is it. It's taking, taking different things from paganism, from spiritualism, from the, from the Catholic Church, from apostate Protestantism, and putting it all together and says, this is the emerging church. It's a combination of all three unclean spirits. This is the omega of apostasy. This is what will condition the world to accept the false Jesus when he arrives. But God has raised us up, the the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, to preach a distinct message, like you said. But this this movement will continue through. So the question is, if we ought to fight against it, if we ought to, to guard ourselves from it, how do we guard ourselves and guard our church, guard our children and our grandchildren against this movement. How? Yes, you do. What do we do? You know, for, for, for thousands of years, Christ has always had a people here on earth. He has always had a people. It's amazing. During the 42-month period in Revelation 12, where the woman went into the wilderness, remember that, for 42 months, which is also equal to three and a half years, also equal to 1,260 days or years, this time period the the dark ages Christians were thrown into the uh, lion's den the Waldensians were out there their lives were on the line just so that they could preserve God's word they were they died horrific deaths just so that we could have God's word in our hands isn't that amazing that's amazing Martin Luther who, who stood up against the the big Roman Catholic church and said you know what guys you're wrong you're wrong. And, <laughs> and, and he was labeled as a heretic, began the Protestant Reformation, men like uh, John Wycliffe, who was threatened to be killed if he translated the Bible into the common language, but he did anyway. He went against the authority anyway because he knew that what God's word was saying was truth and that every person on earth needed to hear it. John Huss. You know, do you guys know how John Huss died? He was burned at the stake. That's right. And as he was burning, according to history, I don't know if it's true, but according to those history books, like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, as John Huss was there on the stake, and they lit the fire, and and he began to burn, he began to sing hymns. Now how does a man do that? When fire is melting your skin off your bones, how do you sing hymns? But he did. He had peace with Jesus. Our pioneers, William Miller, James White, Uriah Smith, Wagner, Jones, Ellen White, all these men and women of of great power who who cared not about the world and what they thought, but cared about the Advent message and that they had a vision. They had a vision that that this movement that started right down the road from here would expand across the whole world, and it did. And God used them. You know, it's amazing because I'm here in Michigan for the second time in, in my life, And I'm amazed to see that, you know what, this is where God actually started his movement for the last days. It's actually pretty amazing (laughs) to me. I don't know about you because you guys lived here all your life. But anyway, Wagner and Jones, Ellen White says, in Last Day Events, page 43, God has a church on earth who are lifting up the downtrodden law and presenting to the world the Lamb of God that taketh away the what? The sins of the world. She also says there is but one church in the world who are at the present time standing in the breach and making up the hedge, building up the old waste places. That's you and I. Amen. She also says the Lord has made us the, the depositaries of his law. He has committed to us sacred and eternal truth, which is to be given to others in, in faithful warnings, reproofs, and encouragement. And then finally, she says in a special sense. Seven of the Adventists have been set in the world as number one, what? Watchmen and number two, Light Bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining a wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. You know, the most important role in the world, higher than the president in the White House, the most important role is being a the Adventist. We're told that this is God's institution on Earth. Yes, absolutely. The message, the movement, people who hold truth. Now, Christ here on Earth, how did He reach people? How did he reach people? We're told at my Ellen White, Christ, what, method alone, will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy for them, ministered to them, I'm sorry, to, to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. Let me tell you, we're called Christians for a reason. We're followers of Christ. And we wonder why we have failed so many times in evangelism because we have not followed Christ's method alone, right? You know, the most important part of evangelism is not the, uh, the, it's not the prophecy seminar. That's important, but it's not the most important. The most important part is before the seminar, months and years before the seminar, where you befriend people, where you win their confidence, where you, where you invite them to church and let them see this loving church family. And then when they come, after hearing truths for months and weeks and years, and they come, it's a reiteration to them, it's sealed in their minds, they're baptized, and, and they'll stay in the church forever. You know, I mean, pastors who, who baptize people after a meeting, and three months later they're gone. It's called bad retention because they have not followed Christ's method alone. It's pretty simple, Christ's method alone. Showing sympathy for them, ministering to their needs, winning their confidence, and then follow me. Now, notice, Ellen White says that we are called to be two things. How many things? Two. Number one, watchmen. Number two, light bearers. What's a watchman? What was that? Guard the house. A guard dog. (laughs) Watchmen, watching out there, what's going on? And then also light bearers. What is a light bearer? They bear the light, right? Now, I want to talk about a little about light bearers today. Ooh, I got ahead of myself. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 uh, and verse 17. Well, I mean, we all know verse 17, right? Right? <laughs> Without looking, it says, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, right? And, and, and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the what? The testimony of Jesus. But previously in the verses, we're told in, uh, in verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael, who is Jesus, and his angels fought against the dragon, and, and the dragon, who was Satan, fought against God with his angels. And he prevailed not, neither was there a place found anymore in heaven, So this great controversy theme or the the systematic theology of the Seventh-day Adventist church is built upon the foundation of Adventism. That's what happened. Now, Lucifer, can anyone tell me what his name means? Lightbearers, right? We all know that. Lightbearers. Watch this. The Seventh-day Adventist church was raised up by God to do the work which Lucifer failed to do. We're called to be Lucifers. (laughs) We're called to be light bearers. I am. Yes, thank you. Thanks for reminding me. We're called to be people who do the work which Lucifer failed to do in heaven. What was his job in heaven? He was a covering cherub, wasn't he? On the Ark of the Covenant, guarding the law, the glory, the character of God. To be a minister of the character of God to all the angels in heaven, and he failed to do that by lying to them and misrepresenting the character of love of God to the angels. And so this whole war began. We're called to do that, to bear the character of God. Now, Elohim says, Zarvages, page 22, the earth was dark through the misapprehension of what? When Christ came, the earth was dark. Because nobody knew who God really was. Yes, God had a church. Yes, God had Israel. God had Jerusalem and the temple. But it was all, it was all, they were all worshiping in vain, I guess you could say. Because they had the truth, but there was no spirit in them. They had the Sabbath. They had all the prophecies. They memorized the Torah. They knew everything. But when Christ came, the earth was dark through the misapprehension of who God is. She says that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God. Satan's uh, deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to, to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. Amen? To know God is to love Him. His character must be made manifest in contrast to the character that of Satan. This is how you combat any heresy. This is how you combat any apostasy and the ultimate omega of apostasy, the the emerging church movement. Manifesting God's character of love to the whole world effectively. Not just calling yourself a Christian, not just calling yourself a a Seventh-day Adventist, but by living the character of Christ, which is love. Which means you can no longer be a miserable Adventist. Amen? She says, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and angels. Now, what does that mean? I thought that Christ came just to show us who God is. No, 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 because if you understand the big theme which encompasses the whole Bible called the great controversy theme, not only were humans dark through misapprehension, but the universe was dark through misapprehension. They still had doubt about God, right? And it was only at the cross of Calvary where, where Christ was lifted up that the whole universe saw God for who he really was and then in their mind it said, yep, he is a God of love. Lucifer was a liar, which is why Lucifer's probation closed at the cross. Because before that, Lucifer could have went to all the other worlds. We're told by Ellen White in the book Early Writings, Lucifer went to all the worlds that they're trying to deceive people or trying trying to deceive all the, these unfallen beings to sin. But at the cross, he was grounded upon earth. He was his. Uh, I, I guess his his probation closed. He was stuck here on earth. Because the whole universe then saw who God was, a God of love, and saw who Lucifer was, a liar. Which is why she says, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to show us and the angels who God was. The ministry of Christ here on earth was not just for us, guys. It was for the whole universe. And then she says, he was the word of God. God's thought made audible. uh, audible. In his prayer for his disciples, he says, I have declared unto them thy name, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. As the love wherewith thou hast loved me, may be in them, and I in them. In your Bibles now, to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, starting at verse 17. All right, let's stop right here for now, though. Does anyone know what happened in chapter 32? Does anyone know? The golden calf. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he, <laughs> he asked Joshua, what is that sound? Oh, it's not, it's not parting. It's the sound of what? He, he, he used the term war. And then what, when Moses got down from Sinai, he saw the big golden calf, which his own brother erected from all the jewelry from the, from the children of Israel. They melted it down and built this big, this big calf. And then Moses was what? He was enraged. So he got those tablets and he threw them what? Threw them down. Broke them. And then what happened? Oh, God's law is gone now. So what do we do? Got to hike back up the mountain all over again. So guess what? Moses goes up again. And as Moses goes up again, chapter 33 happens. So now let's read. Chapter 33 and Verse 17. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by what? What's another word for name? Character. God knew Moses by his character. Moses understood righteousness by faith. Verse 18. And then Moses said, I beseech thee, Lord, show me thy glory. And then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So Moses asks God because Moses is sick and tired of of Israel. They keep disobeying. After God broke the whole sea open for them, they still melted their their jewelry and built a calf. Isn't that crazy? God just broke the whole ocean open open for you to walk through on dry ground and you still disobey him. That's what sin does to you. It makes you stupid. It really does. And then Moses, he, oh, he's sick of them. He goes up, Lord, I'm done. Show me your glory. And then God says, Moses, I will show you my name. And then in the next chapter, th- uh, 34, uh, starting here in verse 5, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So What happens? When God proclaims his name to Moses, God gives Moses his character. Right? His character. Now, will there be a people in the last days? In fact, you know what? Before I say that, let's turn to Revelation chapter um, 14. Revelation 14. And it says this, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Sion, and with him a hundred and what? 44,000, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. We learned earlier that name is, uh, is a synonym to the word character. In the last days of earth's history, there will be a people called the 144,000. They're literal or symbolic, I don't care but there will be a people in in the last days who have the Father's name written in their forehead. What does that mean? They have the character of God in their life. Is, Is the Father's name stamped in their forehead? No, it's what? It's written in their forehead. Is there a difference between having God's name stamped on your forehead and written on your forehead? You see, if it's stamped, it takes place one time. It's called the evangelical gospel once saved, always saved. Built upon Calvinism. But here we're told that the Father's name is written, it's a process. God writes his character in your life. It's a process. It's called justification, it's called sanctification, which ultimately leads into glorification. It's a process, it's written. In their foreheads. Amen. This is beautiful. And then, and then Paul says, Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter four verse six. "For God who commanded the light to shine out of what? Darkness, Ellen White said, that the earth was dark through the misapprehension of, of, of God. And then Paul says, "For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts." And then what? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is found in the face of Jesus Christ. It's character. It's character, restoration. That's the theme of the gospel. God wants to restore his character in your life. And he gives you grace. He gives you power to overcome sin so that his character can be restored in your life. Amen? That's the beauty of the gospel. You see, most churches teach you that this grace thing is just sprinkled dust upon you. Oh, God's grace is on you. You're saved. What do you do? But the biblical gospel it says grace is power to, grace is power to overcome sin. It's power. It's not fairy dust, which saves you. It's power and strength to overcome sin. The same grace that Christ received while here on earth. You see, Christ came here on earth and the only way that, that, that He remained sinless is because He was dependent upon His Father. Every day, hours in prayer with the Father. That way, he, he could effectively show the character of the Father to the world. And if we as Adventists ought to show the character of, of the Father to the world, we should follow Christ's method, being dependent upon the Father Daily. That's why, you know what, let me tell you this. That's why there's so much trouble in the world today. That's why there's so much trouble in the Adventist church today, like the emerging church movement. Because we're not spending an hour each day contemplating on the life of Christ. That's the real reason why. That's what Laodicean means. That's why we did not receive the 1888 message because we have not seen God for who He really is. And until we spend time daily in God's Word, learning about who He is, we're not going to go anywhere. We're still going to be here. Michigan cat meeting will be here for the next 300 years. Unfortunately. But, If we commit, you know what? We're going to spend time in God's word daily. And we're going to behold him allowing his character to to transform us. Things will start changing in this conference. Well, By the way, this conference is amazing already. But things will will start changing in the world church. God's character will be vindicated and guess what? Prophecy will start happening. Sunday laws will, will start passing. Things will You know, we're told that um, the last events will be rapid ones, right? Once things, once we do our job, things will happen very fast and Christ will come. But that's why Ellen White says, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself and his church. When the character of Christ should be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. You ought to memorize that quote. That's why we're still here. That's why this. Emerging church is growing and growing and growing. And and if we don't do our job, it's going to keep growing. Amen? You see, that's why Ellen White always said, always reminded us, we're under the herald of the third angel's message. Because the third angel's message is what? Let's turn there real fast. Let's, let's, Let's turn there real fast. Revelation 14 Verse 6-12, uh, well, that's the total three angels. So let me ask you, what's the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. What does that mean? Yes, it talks about 1844 and, and all that good stuff. But the first word there, what does it mean to fear God? Proverbs 1, verse 7. Let's turn there. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It gives us the definition of what fear is. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is what? What's the root word of knowledge? To know God. When it says fear God and give Him glory, and glory is a word for character, what it's saying is guys, know who He is and then reflect Him in your life. That's a first angel's message. Linked to the investigative Judgment. Because they go hand in hand, character restoration, the investigative judgment, it's what it's all about. Now, angel number two, Babylon is fallen, it's fallen, right? Okay, well, we all know this, right? It, it, it fell first with Catholicism, and it fell again with Apostate Protestantism. That's why Babylon is fallen, it's fallen. God doesn't waste words in scripture, right? It's fallen twice. And then ultimately, the, the third angel's message, if, if any man works the beast and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, it talks about the mark of the beast there. Now, but now, verse 12 is also linked to, to the third angel's message. So what does Revelation 14, verse 12 say? Here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and, and the faith of Jesus. When Ellen says, we are under the herald of the third angel's message, she's saying we're under righteousness by faith. Verse 12, now let me ask you, is there a reason why John, the the revelator, doesn't say here is the patience of the saints, here are they who keep God's law and have the faith in Jesus. Instead, John says the faith of Jesus. John understood what true righteousness by faith is. Faith in Jesus is the evangelical theology. Just look at Christ, you accept him, oh, you're good to go. Faith in Christ. No. The faith of Jesus. Look at him, behold him, because by beholding you become, by beholding him, then he lives in you. And his character is made manifest in you. That's righteousness by faith. And that's why we're under this herald, this big herald of the third angel's message. That's what Sister White's talking about there. Righteousness by faith, in conjunction and relation to the Isaiah 58 message and the investigative judgment, is the only way that, that we will restore God's character in our life and then, and, and then ultimately usher in His coming, which will cause an end to this emerging church movement or the Omega of apostasy in the church. Okay? So, what is it all about? Well, let's turn there. Isaiah 58, briefly because we're coming to a close soon. How many minutes do I have? A few more minutes. Okay, Isaiah 58. Here we are in verse, starting in verse six. Are you there? Here we go. Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free? and that ye break every yoke. Verse 7, Is this not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that uh, that thou bring the the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Verse 8, Then shall thy light character break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily. And thy righteousness, by faith, shall go before thee, and the glory, character, of the Lord shall be thy reward. You see how this is a direct relation to the three angels' messages. And this is the work which Christ did on earth. This is the work which we do. Now, when Christ worked here on earth, Elohim says that Christ came to reveal the Father both to men and Who? angels right if we are to do the very same work then we ought to review the father to both men and or the universe because Satan is saying that, you know what those people can't really keep God's law they, they can't do it it's impossible to do it so then when, when we have God's character restored in us and we keep God's law it not only vindicates God but it proves Satan a liar which is why it's very important. That's how you end this movement. Now, back to the emerging church. Sorry, that's a little tangent. Brian McLaren says, we need to restore contemplation to know God. We need to bring back the contemplative practices of spiritual formation and social justice. It's been amazing for me in my travels to meet so many pastors and other leaders for whom spiritual direction has become an important part of their spiritual lives. I think we need a growing corpse of trained people for whom spiritual direction is a primary vocation. So he's saying that in order to know who God is, we, we must engage in modern mysticism. Which which is utterly false. Why would the devil attack the term know God? Because salvation is dependent upon knowing God. John 17, 3, And this is life eternal, that ye may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Salvation is built upon knowing God's character. Because we can't be saved unless God's character is in us. Why would they attack the term no? You see, this statement, guys, this statement here by McLaren is is an attack against the third angel's message. This statement is an attack upon righteousness by faith. Christ came 2,000 years ago to show us who he is. There were heresies, yes, in his day. But Christ didn't spend too much time talking about those heresies. So I caution you, don't spend too much time talking about all the problems in our church. Yeah, there are big problems, but don't spend your time there. Follow Christ. What did Christ do? He went out and helped people. He went out and healed people. He went out and preached to people. That's what we ought to do. Because when we do that, God's character in the Adventist church will be vindicated. And guess what? prophecy can then be fulfilled and he will come to take us home amen let's pray lord thank you for jesus christ for showing us how to defeat the enemy how to defeat deadly heresies in the world and in our church lord bless each person here lord in their own ministries lord pastors lay people lord bless them as they go back to their homes and conferences and churches, Lord, as they minister to people, Lord, help them to have your character in their lives. Lord, write your name in their forehead, your character in their forehead. Seal them, Lord, with your character. And bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.